Bonsack von Seiko. Screw the meek, open a shell company, and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. This is episode 145, and my name's Randy. And my name is Jakob. All right. Welcome, everyone. We'll jump right to it, uh, but start firstly with our announcements. Welcome to November, brand new month. Uh, if you were with us last week, we wrapped our demonic Tober talking about the ninth configuration. Uh, and if you did check out last week's episode, then thank you for your patience because you allowed us to purge a lot of unholy sentiments in that episode. It was a long month, I got to say. Very long. <laughs> so here we are. We're stopping at a Soderbergh station again. It's We're a, fine! It's a deep cut Soderbergh today. Still on. That's it. The Exorcist Three. Uh, it was a bit. It was a long month, wasn't it? Goodness. Okay, <laughs> we're fine uh, here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll get to our Soderbergh chat in a second. Uh, quickly, want to plug what's going on over at Patreon, and quite a bit actually. So, uh, some of you who listen here are subscribers to our Patreon. So, thank you so much for that. Absolutely means the world to us. If you're not in that elite club, may I recommend that you head on over to our Patreon page patreon.com slash uncut gems pod where for three bucks a month 450 canadian you can get access to 22 months of episodes and that's three episodes a month sometimes more so there's a lot of stuff for you to take in we have a completed david lynch marathon so it's 12 months 12 episodes talking about all of lynch's uh, feature length projects plus twin peaks and that is led by the great nicolo grasso hi nick we have almost completed our John Cassavetes marathon. We're 10 episodes into that adventure. Um, all of them are on Patreon and we are very soon going to be launching our 11th episode. That will be Love Streams. Am I right in saying that? I think I'm right in saying that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, and also here on Patreon too, Soderbergh's bigger, better known films. They're all here coming this week. Not really one of his bigger, better-known ones, High Flying Bird, but it made its way onto the Patreon roster. We had to pick, had to pick one to go on the page. <laughs> it's, it's a great conversation, but anyway, Soderbergh's bigger films, they're all lo- locked and loaded and ready to be listened to on our Patreon, so they're all there. The Oceans films, Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, Sex Lies, they're all there for your consumption. So, um, okay. Also, I should mention just with regard to the John Cassavetes piece is that Gloria just launched at the end of October. So a week or so ago, that was released. So go check that out. And uh, we're, yeah, we're nearly finished our Soderbergh conversations and also our Cassavetes marathon. So it's been, yeah, it's been a fun journey getting into these filmmakers. So just to say what we're doing on the main show this month. Uh, our Uncut Gems theme for November 2023 is going to be the films of Bob Fosse. So there's that. So following today's Soderbergh episode, uh, it's going to be Bob Vember or November Jazz Hands. <laughs> Don't know if Bob we have a... Bob Vember. 
Nothing that I can come up with for the name of our month is nearly as splashy as what Jacob has coined us for the month. We're the Fossy Posse. So that deserves a ton of repetition. So yeah, join us as we talk about all of Fossey's films. And that will include our Patreon exclusive tie-in, which we'll release, I think, next week from the point of this conversation. I think I'm right in saying that. Um, but anyway, we're going to be talking about... Uh, probably... No, no? Hold, on. hold on. No, two weeks from now, no. So two weeks from now, yeah, oh, mate, right. So yes, fifteen, fifteen cabaret drops. 15. Okay, November fifteenth, cabaret drops. That will be a free episode too, by the way. Uh, so that's our tie-in to this month's conversations on Fosse films. Should also mention that our conversation, our tie-in conversation on Patreon last month which connected to our William Peter William Peter Blatty's Demonic Tober, that conversation was The Exorcist, 50th anniversary discussion. That's also a free episode. So go check that out and uh, tell your friends about it. Um, okay, so if you're interested in what you hear there, you can check us out at www.patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. If you're not necessarily interested in a subscription type of support, but you're interested in supporting us, wonderful. Thank you. You can leave a one-time donation at ko-fi.com slash uncutgemspod. That's ko-fi.com. Or alternatively, you know, you can just leave a star rating wherever you get your podcasts, or you can feel free to join the conversation with us, send us comments about the show. We love hearing from you. You can send us an email at uncutgemspod at gmail.com. You can reach us at our socials. That's great. Or you know what? If nothing else, just keep listening. We love that you're there and thank you for your support. Well, okay. If you, if you have to leave us a star rating, make sure it's not a one-star r- review because someone left us, I think, a one-star on, on Spotify. You know, it hurts. Okay? I get it. It's not your bag. You can just move along. Just yeah, say, move on. Move on. Really? Like, I know. didn't know that. What a knob. Okay. Yeah, someone someone just, you know. Be kind or keep moving. Fucking audacity. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But for those who don't mind our conversations and you sort of tune in to listen to our nonsense uh, week after week, fantastic. We love having you. And today, our nonsense including includes talking about Steven Soderbergh's 30th feature film, The Big 3-0, The Laundromat. It's a law firm in Panama, okay? They even have a motto, the wealth management you deserve. I read that. I, I looked it up. And our readers need to know about them. Why? As far as I can see, what they do is they set up companies. Not real companies like a hotel or a, a hardware store. They, they set up a, what they call a shell, and they sell shells. Not actual shells. I'm, I'm sorry, you lost me. I... <clears throat> when there's an accident, like the one that took Joe and Barb, there's nobody that we can hold accountable. There's nobody that we can uh, ask questions and, and, and find out what happens next, you know? It's just, uh, just empty shells, you see? It's just empty. It's just shells. That's the story? Empty shells? No, no, no. The story is somebody died and somebody's making money from it. Maybe lots of people. All right. The Laundromat is a 2020 release directed by Soderbergh. 
and starring Meryl Streep, Gary Oldman, Antonio Banderas, Jeffrey Wright, Robert Patrick, David Schwimmer, Sharon Stone, Melissa Roche, Will Fort, James Cromwell, Cromwell, sorry, get a drink here. Here we go. But the list goes on and on. Huge cast. Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a Soderbergh production, so he's editing and behind the camera again on this one. This is a written by Scott Burns. This is the fourth script that uh, of Burns's that Soderbergh has shot, and it's there. We uh, go. I'm going to say it's the sixth or more project that they've done together because Soderbergh also directed a Scott Burns play off Broadway, and while the laundromat was in production, the library was in production. With sorry, the library was the off-Broadway play. The Report is also in production at the same time as The Laundromat. It's uh, produced the, by Soderbergh. And that's produced by Soderbergh. By it's written and directed by Burns. So these guys, they they do a lot of collabs. So anyway, there's that. Uh, the Laundromat is a film adaptation of the book Secrecy World, written by Jake Bernstein, um, whom I think, as opposed to a novelist, he's more of a journalist, to be honest. Uh, and Secrecy World is about the Panama Papers scandal, which was a massive document leak in 2016 where some 11 to 12 12 million documents were leaked by a whistleblower. Um, The papers that were leaked documented financial data, private attorney client info, and other privileged corporate documentation, which basically threw corporations, governments, government officials, wealthy people under the bus for fraudulent practices, tax dodging, malfeasance of one kind of one kind of one kind or another. Oh goodness. Uh, I know moment. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Brutal. I don't know what's wrong with me today. We need to get a medic in here. (laughs) I'm a little parched, but goodness. So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, Scott Burns and Steven Soderbergh's film, they're working together. Again, This it's a black comedy that's sort of a unique approach to telling a whistleblower type of story. But I suppose we've seen a touch of that in The Informant, which was another uh, film that these two collaborated on. Uh, so it follows the story, ultimately, of two lawyers who were at the center of the scandal, uh, Jürgen Mosak, that's Gary Oldman, and Roman Fonseca, that is Antonio Banderas, and they narrate and also act as a bit of a Greek course, I want to say, through a number of stories and cases from the Panama Papers. They follow a paper trail of sorts through a Kafka-esque bureaucracy and battles of wealth distribution and impropriety. There's several stories. We'll probably get into them. Uh, But the film's inciting incident is a married couple, Meryl Streep and James Cromwell, they're on vacation and then there's they're on like a lake boat tour and then there's a rogue wave which topples the boat and then this is just sort of the opening strand to this this paper trail of fraud and commodities trading and all this stuff, trusts and shell companies. Uh, so Cromwell dies and the company that owns the boat they're trying to get their insurance company to back them. And meanwhile, Meryl Streep is trying to, uh, you know, cash in on the life insurance policy. And she's trying to sue the, the lake boat company. And then, boy, oh boy, the nonsense going on behind the scenes where people can't get their support, even though they've paid their premiums. Anyway, 
there's a lot to this. It's it's loaded mm-hmm. with details, and I'm not convinced I did a great job on introducing that. <laughs> but it's the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of stuff to follow. So anyway, we'll we'll get to it or try Look, to at it's least. It's not easy. I asked Chat GPT to produce a plot synopsis of this oh. film, and it produced five paragraphs. <laughs> I see, I think mine was only like three. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot here. So, anyway, we'll pick it as, as we can and try to get the bottom of whatever this, this movie's trying to tell us. So, behind the scenes, the Panama Papers scandal is a, it's a, it's a new story. It's an event that, uh, that took place in 2016. Bernstein was on top of it as a, as a journalist right away because his book was released in late 2016 or early 2017. Um, so Soderbergh almost right away declared an interest in making a film about this scandal. So Scott Burns got a hold of the the <clears throat> rights and he went off to adapt uh, adapt the book and you know make a script out of this. He actually, in his own research to building this uh, story, interviewed the men at the center of it. So Fosak, sorry. Fonseca Sorry. and Mosak. Fonseca Fonseca. Fonseca and Fonseca. So Scott Burns actually had an opportunity to interview these guys as part of his research. Uh, so that's probably, you know, mention worthy. So anyway, Balsak and Fonseca. Gracious. I knew I knew I shouldn't have used that name because I'm just going to, I'm just going to say Balsak the whole episode. Anyway, that wouldn't be the end of the world, would it? Okay, so <laughs> have you seen Liar Liar? By the way, oh, not when, in years, not in years. Uh, when when he uh, when like Jim Carrey has a meltdown and he he shouts, "I'm Jose Canseco," I'm, <laughs> I'm just like, "I'm Bullsack Fonseca." <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jose Canseco. <laughs> <laughs> and just to what say, a movie. <laughs> as far as we know in our research and from what we saw in this film, we have no reason to believe that Jose Canseco has anything to do with any type of fiduciary malfeasance. So You can't say fiduciary without saying douche. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, um, so Soderbergh expressed his interest early in this. And so he was even, you know, beginning the development process and he had was having trouble raising money for this. But then... Meryl Streep came into the fray, apparently on the recommendation of Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols apparently is a big fan of Soderbergh. Can so. you imagine this? <laughs> the phone call. Um, I, I have an actress to recommend to you, Steve. Like, there's this like young up-and-coming sort of starlet I have on my, in my stable. Meryl's her name. Oh. <laughs> and then similarly, when Mike, Mike Nichols is talking to Meryl's, Meryl Streep, uh, there's this young filmmaker that's uh, doing a project with the Panama <laughs> Papers. Steven He's, Soderbergh. Don't know yeah. if you've heard of him. Yeah. Steve So Soderbergh. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, once Meryl Streep expressed an interest and became part of the project, it was easier to get funding. So everything seemed to line up. And I'm, memory serves uh, as it. this is a Netflix film. Uh, Meryl Streep was part of a few Netflix productions too. Wasn't there a musical? Oh, I'm trying to think, yeah. what was that called? I, uh, I the, forget it. Is it the prom? That's the, it. Thank you. I hated it. I know. And, I, I, I was actually for this, I think I, I, I was on the Clappercast 
And I was like the like the only the sole voice of reason in that because like I think Carson loved it. <laughs> I really like just really disliked it. But it seemed that, that Netflix had a thing for Meryl Streep at the time, so they loved the idea. Uh, and I was reading this somewhere too that they didn't have any Meryl Streep films in their library. So what was Netflix doing a few years ago? They were just throwing money at perceived problems. So let's finance a few of Meryl Streep's films. So this may have been part of that mentality over at the uh, Netflix offices. So uh, that's about all I have for behind the scenes notes on, on this. These Netflix productions are, you know, very lacking of uh, details that one can, one can research. But anyway, as I said, this is a Netflix baby. So, you know, it, it had, it did have a very brief, somewhat splashy festival run in September, 2019. It did play at Venice. It did play at TIFF. I think it played at a couple other, um, early fall festivals, but just six weeks after its debut in mid-October, it was released um, on Netflix. So um, it didn't land with most critics. Most didn't really groove on its style of delivery. Um, some critics called it muddled and too busy. Some liked it though. Owen Gleiberman at Variety, he said, Soderbergh at his most playful and wonkish and it works. And <laughs> To which my response was, have you seen Schizopolis? <laughs> that is quite a bit more playful and arguably you imagine he's, wonkish. He'd probably shit himself if he saw Schizopolis. <laughs> and I like, think, oh my God. <laughs> I want to say that Gleiberman Can was... bold men have sex? <laughs> <laughs> I, want to say that, I want to say that Gleiberman was with Entertainment Weekly at the time, and he may not have reviewed that. It might have been the other staff writer, Lisa Schwartzbaum, but I, I do forget. But anyway... Uh, the laundromat did ruffle a few feathers upon its release. There's a subplot involving China and a disgraced former politician, Bo Zilai. Uh, so the film was deleted from Duban, which I think is the Chinese letterbox, maybe. So it doesn't even exist there. It wasn't released in China. Um, there's a little bit more blowback, too, against the idea of Meryl Streep in Brownface. I'm sure we'll get into it. Um and the two, the two <laughs> lawyers themselves, it's Balsack a disguise. And Fonseca, <laughs> it's a disguise, by the way. Anyway, we'll get to it. So Balsack and Fonseca themselves, they tried to sue Netflix and tried to block the film's release, but uh, that, the audacity, right? <laughs> after Scott Burns interviewed them. So anyway, I don't know what's up with that, but it's anyway, like, I wonder why this guy is trying to interview us. <laughs> Oh, they're making a movie? Oh, it's not going to be... Do you think it's going to be very flattering? Like, what do you think, Ramon? And then Ramon goes like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be like a prestige biopic. And they see this and just like, this is not what we signed up for. Yeah, did they not not look into Scott Burns at all? Like, he's sort of the whistleblower guy. They're like, the the delusion. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, Jakob, that brings us to now. Uh, Would you invest in the laundromat? What were your (laughs) thoughts on this? Like I've seen you in, enough you like YouTube videos about laundromats to know that you know like actually investing in one's not a bad idea, <laughs> you know. Like it's some good money. It's like you have to be able to deal with cash though. Um. Anyway, where was I? Oh, okay. The Soderbergh film. You know, it's uh, how do I call this? It's directed by Steven So Soderbergh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's one of those that it just like I think it just when it starts off you just feel like okay this 
maybe or maybe this is just me just jumping directly out of high flying bird into this and it just felt refreshing for like the first 15 minutes where it's just like wow, this actually you know this ain't half bad and then you realize it's kind of mediocre uh like my go-to sort of sort of comparison for me it's kind of like a you know it's the big shot from wish <laughs> sort of like a very sort of um quickly cobbled together me too version of the big short um I suppose the conversation about the Panama Papers is coming, so I'm going to limit myself to just this. It's a, yeah, it's a very busy film. It's a, a lot of a, a lot's happening, but equally nothing's really happening because it's all vignettes, and these vignettes they don't necessarily have their own like resolutions that are meaningful or funny or poignant. They're just there, and sometimes you realize, like, wow, I've been looking at this South African billionaire family for 15 minutes, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or this sort of, you know, or, or every now and again, we're just like, why is Meryl Streep in Vegas? <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> uh, or for some reason, like, we'll just, oh, we're. I suppose Gary Oldman in, with his German accents now not just a narrator like we we're just in his office for a little while okay uh, <laughs> so and yeah so it's it's a bit it's just being polite it's a bit of a mess but it's you know it's okay like I, I can see like the closest comparative case in in Soderbergh's filmography would be his you know his Lester years you know this is this is opportunity to kind of just like whip out the satire, just get get close to Buñuel again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure if it's landing all that well, and I don't know what wh- whether this is the story is or or yeah, I don't know why that is, or maybe this is just Soderbergh's no no longer himself, like he's not, he doesn't have the edge, maybe, I don't know. But overall, it's kind of like a. F- Maybe this is going to be a commentary in its own right about the Panama Papers and the importance thereof, or lack thereof, I suppose. Um, because like immediately the film finishes with this grand statement from Mel Streep as she's you know taking over disguise and then takes off another disguise and then she starts talking to you as Meryl Streep and then she just pretends she's Statue of Liberty and the credits roll and then you switch it off and just move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like, you know, like the whole world kind of just reacted to Panama Papers kind of like that, as in like, okay, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I feel about this movie. It's a very, um, yeah, mediocre is the word thing it's, that I'm going to kind of come back to quite often in this, in this conversation, I fear. So how about you? Did this movie rock your socks off, knock socks <laughs> off? Mr. Yeah, look. Uh, <laughs> Did it tickle your balls like for a second? So, uh, yeah, I hadn't seen this before. I did not. <laughs> I, d- I didn't watch this over the pandemic or, or anything. It's just so this is new territory for me. So, yeah, Adam McKay, like this feels like a vice or uh, the big short type of thing. And I'm not necessarily sold on those movies similarly i'm not necessarily sold on this but this is palatable and it was sort of a what was the 100 minutes or was it oh, 95 no, like minutes or something it's it yeah so it's sort of breezy and chugs along and i i don't mind um vignette movies you know or or these uh 
almost like I guess it treats itself as if they're anthologies, as if they're sort of important stories, but really they're just stories that are extracted from the Panama Papers and expanded upon dramatically in in Scott Scott Burns' hand. Uh, it's all fine. It it plays like a political cartoon and not necessarily a super sharp, thoughtful one. Like it's there, and and I get it. And if I were to spend a lot of time thinking about the story and you know just where it's coming from and and all of this financial nonsense that's going on in the world that is keeping the rich rich and keeping the middle class struggling and keeping the poor really poor you know it would infuriate me but i i don't think it's a strong enough film to light any fire it's it's like an okay political cartoon i guess that's what i want to say um having recently we just recently chatted about high flying bird check that out on our patreon as i mentioned earlier but i do wonder if we're entering this era with Soderbergh where he's working on smaller productions and just some of his some of his focus isn't on I'll, I'll say the the early development of the script you know talked about this in High Flying Bird mm-hmm. he's just he's not fully engaged in the the development of the project although apparently he was involved you know here early but he's not it's it just doesn't fully land so yeah it's fun Soderbergh and it's it's sort of a fun little film in its own right, but there's not necessarily a fire here. And I think that this is a film that if this is, if this is Soderbergh during his section eight years, this, this probably has a very passionate, you know, statement and, and, uh, and resonates with you. Like traffic does traffic is doing something similar, but very, very seriously. Um, yeah, this is having fun, but I still think there's a statement in here that is maybe misdelivered or is just, and maybe it's just a function of it being the black comedy of it. You know, like here's something very serious that's going on in the world. And then let's have a bit of a comical look at it or have a bit of a joke at it. Maybe that undermines it. Um, we'll get into it. But yeah, this here is perfectly fine. It doesn't sit with me with a whole lot of weight and gravity, although I don't mind this at all. Um, so anyway, before we began recording, we were talking about Netflix-styled productions and maybe Soderbergh's, this this era of Soderbergh where he's dealing with streamers and how not just this film is forgettable, but other Netflix films are sort of forgettable, I would say, too. And and we said, is, is cinema dying? I wouldn't mind just sort of picking up uh, on that conversation. Is cinema dying and films like The Laundromat, they don't resonate and they're hard to remember. This might, we might remember this, you and me being, you know, sort of cinema geeks. Oh, well, the laundromat, that's the Soderbergh one because we've got the the connection and the relationship with Soderbergh. Someone else just passively comes across this, this movie once in 2019 or, or 2020 rather, when it's in the, uh, the algorithm to light up their Netflix for a month and a half, then it's gone forever. In the 90s, this is a film that, probably makes 20 million or so at the box office has a little bit of a run on video and but it's it's on video store shelves for the next couple of years so it's people know it know of it that doesn't happen anymore and is this just the era we're in and is this mm-hmm. where <laughs> is this where Soderbergh's career is just forgettable films that don't stand out I think it maybe just a, this is where everyone's careers are <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I mean, I'd like to be able to say otherwise because I've just that I emerged from the Killers of the Flower Moon and I was elated with this film. So I don't know. I'd like to think otherwise, but I feel like, you know, like for instance, like Killers of the Flower Moon is going to be released on Apple TV Plus and it's probably going to generate buzz for like three weeks. Maybe it will reemerge for a second when like Oscars come back on and that will die and will just still be there. Similarly, like like the Irishman, there was this buzz yeah. around it. It yeah. was this like, see it in the cinema, or this movie is like three weeks long, or something, yeah. <laughs> or something yeah. like that. And that that's it. Like these sort of shitty think pieces, and you know, like here's seven films are more than five hours long, or whatever. Just and that's that's all the conversation about this, and then they're gone. Uh, meanwhile, yeah, like and any everyone will have this mank. Came and went, right? Perfect example. Um, yeah. Right. And and this was like a massive passion project for the guy, right? And yeah. then you think to yourself, like, okay, well, Soderbergh is almost just because he, he's a guy who just like, you give him money, he's gonna make a movie. So like, you should be happy he's not making this on an iPhone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know. Uh, but I, I feel this this could be it. As in, like, well, we're we're now in the era of content where it's not art. It's not supposed to mean anything to anyone. It's not supposed to support a conversation over dinner because what supports the conversation over dinner is random shit that happened to you, which has always been the case. Yeah. Uh, or and and you know, wh- whatever's on social media that these days, right? These sort of like useless bits of trivia about the Kardashians or whatever the hell, you know, is kind of what it is. So. Like, no, people just don't care about movies the way they used to. And it shows. As in, like, well, I don't even know if whether there has been at all a conversation about uh, the laundromat as a film. It just came and went. Similarly, maybe this is a commentary on just how we are geared as a species now to um, just seek immediate gratification, instant gratification, right? So... We're looking for this sort of ten-minute YouTube video with a like I don't know, like a Huel ad in the middle, a whoop a whoop ad in the in, in front of it, and that's it. Move on with your day. Anything longer longer than that, or something something that has something to say, it's gone. It's just this is me extending this immediately and derailing this into into something else. Like a, like yesterday, I watched a YouTube video about. Um, this guy just showing like these sort of like steps how to how to actually make money by writing in 2023, right? And I'm just thinking to myself, I think you know what? As a result of this, like these tips of like this is what you need to do if you really want to seriously become a professional writer, right? Um, as a result of this, I'm just saying to myself, maybe I don't want to make money doing this because it feels like a like it's not gonna be fun to me right because what what they basically denounce is the legacy publishing is dead because you know like you don't get the feedback so you have to like don't start your own blog don't start your own website start publishing on like medium on social media and then you have to write content that that brings feedback you know you have to do what people enjoy and then realize and then find out what people enjoy and do more of that uh so you know write these productivity lists do that and i'm just like this is boring so because, and then uh, as a result, you just think to yourself, like, this is what we end up producing. We produce stuff that ge- generates this quick and easy response, like this immediate buzz, 
and it dies because it doesn't have anything else. It doesn't have a staying power. And then you're like, well, that's kind of where we are. And then as a result, as a result of this, people will just write off movies like Mank because they it may actually may have had a stay, staying power, but it just remi- re- requires you to have a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, like the Laundromat, for instance, is a movie that, uh, um, you know, is a film that does not really have that. It actually plays into this game of. Look, let's generate a little bit of buzz because it has these keywords here and there. It's kind of like the big short, but not really because we didn't pay this much attention. We're not as passionate as Ad, because I'm pretty sure like Adam McKay was really um, passionately angry about this when he was writing a script for the big short. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't feel the same like emotion coming through this. It's one of those that's just it feels like it's an opportunistic filmmaking. So if we do this now, we're going to we're going to hit it with the audiences for now because it this is what we think people care about right now. Kind of like the post. It was like the right mm-hmm. rather like the big short the post and this was kind of like the same era of like we we have to tap into the so the social moment. Yeah. We have to generate yeah. our viral moments, like engineer them. I'm like give me a break. <laughs> that's kind of how like, this is this is why cinema is sort of on its way out as a as a go-to sort of forum for exchange of cultural information do you think that Soderbergh and I tend to agree with everything that you just said um do you think that Soderbergh's work during this part of his career like his you know his last we'll say his last six years seven years his post-retirement um after the fingerprint releasing stuff because that's sort of a different gamut but do you think that he's playing a little bit of a lazier game and just like he's producing content. Do you think he sees it that way? Do you, like, do you see that he has a fire and maybe I'm just getting ahead of things because things might happen to change with uh, no sudden move and Kimmy, once he gets into some genre stuff, mm-hmm. um, but I certainly I think, those, by the way, too, I don't know. Yeah. But I, I yeah. And I'm not hundred percent sure either. I have seen Kimmy, but um, it just feels now we're on a little run with Soderbergh where he's making flatter films or films that have sort of fundamental flaws in them that wouldn't have been there earlier in his career. Mm, I think so, yeah. I think that's, I don't know why. Is this one of those where like Netflix essentially just got him to sign a contract and they, they got him to, um, to make like, I don't know, three movies for him? For, for them and he goes like oh fine can't blanch I can do whatever the hell I want Scott do you have a script you're writing and I was like I'm really angry about this this Panama Papers I have I don't have the time to de- delve into all of this because it's it's quite sprawling and everything but we're gonna get something out of this cool give me a call when when the script's finished and uh, so it, it feels very opportunistic because mm-hmm. they, he he's smart enough I think to know um that like the lands land is shifting you know like big studios have to like finally contend with these young up and coming uh, streaming platforms who realize they have enough money to become their own producing outfits. They can, they can be studios and compete um, with Disney's and Paramount's and Warner brothers, right. Of this, of, of, of you know, the legacy Hollywood, I suppose. Right. And I, I feel this is totally an opportunity for, for them to go like, oh, like these people are just dishing out money. So how about I, like Fincher um, jumps on this and goes, I'm, this is this is my opportunity to do a passion project for me. Um, Scorsese 
same thing. Yeah. Like all these people kind of just jump on this and say, look, this is an opportunity for me to, to make a movie that I've always wanted to make, but studios would always say no because it's either too expensive or no one's going to see it or both. Right. Um, meanwhile, I don't think like Soderbergh had a passion project in his, you know, in his soul. He's just like, oh, you want to give me movies? Like, let me just hold my beer. Like, I, I can quickly cook something up because he, this is how he can work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so no, I that's, think... That's how I feel. Yeah, I think maybe his just his MO is a little a little different here. Um, because insofar as passion projects, it's not, not like he necessarily has passion projects, but he does keep going back to the well, I would say, on certain, on certain things. Uh, in he had particular... He's like Moneyball was his passion project, right? I don't think so. I think that uh, was that was not. just a, that was just a job. But you know, but there were projects that he would. I think that any project that he developed, like he was all in on, and you know, he sort of gave his heart and soul to the project. But I don't necessarily know of of any of the films that we talked about that were something that were really passionate to him. Like you know, it was like Solaris something that that he really wanted to do. I, I don't, don't know. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't like recall that. Did. They may, they may, there may not be. I think in before this his retirement, he would be in this sort of like one for me, one for them sort of mode because he had to contend with the studios. Meanwhile, like now he's come back from retirement. Not only can he make a movie on an iPhone for a fraction of the money that you know Paramount would have given given him, or I don't know Universal would have given him. Uh, now he also gets showered with money. Mm, yeah. So like all of a sudden like he gets like a uh, potentially like a three picture deal out of Netflix and he goes like, I, yeah I don't have to do one for me one for them and all of a sudden like it's just like he's spoiled for choice so he has to just, you know like to do anything and he's probably like, told himself after Logan Lucky, I could I could do this myself anyway I can do a twenty five thirty million dollar film if I had to anyway I can I can go the the self distribution the Logan Lucky route mm-hmm. so like his mindset is pro is certainly much different here than when he was he was a young man but i yeah i think that as opposed to and i think those are excellent points about scorsese and fincher oh i can do this crazy project that no one wanted to touch before because they'll they'll dish out at one of the streamers for me to do it i think you're exactly right and then soderbergh probably doesn't have that doesn't mm-hmm. have that passion passion piece at all but he does go to the well on some things some things that i think that um not necessarily fighting the system but you know, going back to these Kafka-esque ideas, I think that's in here. That, you know, we, we see, we've seen that a few times. The whistleblower piece is something that I think he has a soft spot for, you know, going back to things like Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. Like, I think these things are are, are rooted in, in here. Um, it's just curious to me that uh, we're in this little stretch now where I think there are these fundamental flaws in the in the filmmaking it's <laughs> it's just that it doesn't all come together and it's a guy that i wouldn't say those mistakes were there before it's, it's, just, not it's a mistake it's though it's Sorry, a mistake I'm, in the the approach right like there's just I something suppose, that yeah. hmm, here's a thought he's more of a well okay in a in a way he would be probably working in a way that like woody allen works because he also like he would just churn out movies like two a year or like mm-hmm. statistically one and a half a year, yeah, right for like the last forty years or fifty years or maybe even longer, right? And then now he well not now but he then f- gets on the same bandwagon as in like he gets almost like a multiple picture deal out of Amazon, right? 
and then he does and, and he still doesn't treat it as a oh he is this is an opportunity for me to do a script that no one ever wanted to touch because everything he wanted to do he would always be able to do anyway mm-hmm. he never had the megalopolis it was just like oh no, no one ever wanted to sponsor this massive undertaking or or, or I don't right. know, like a robo apocalypse or something like this, like this big spectacle that would cost billions upon billions or whatever, or it would just involve something that, or un, or trying to produce a film based on an unadaptable book like Cloud Atlas. It, now making Cloud Atlas will be way easier than ever than than before, yeah. right? Right? Yeah, like Woody Allen would always just do the same because for for him, like the movie always costs the same amount of money. Like it takes him, I don't know. So, so much time to write a script. He probably writes it on the toilet. And then all he needs to do is just get some people to work with him. And most of them are happy to do it on, on the reduced on the reduced price because they're always happy to work with Woody Allen because he's so sort of a legend in the industry despite the controversies surrounding him. Like people still kind of go and go and work for him. So yeah he doesn't have to go and say like oh this is my opportunity to do something that i always had in my drawer and no one really wanted to touch because he always did what he wanted to do anyway so i think this is this yeah. is a similar comp i think like he doesn't have the the drawer project he has every his drawer is empty he always he was gets, always able to do what he wanted basically yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no I, I i think that's it it, it just it does seem like from insane to high flying bird to this, it just is sort of it's interesting, like it's, right? <laughs> it's, it's mediocre land, right? Uh, yeah. So, anyway, in terms of the film, uh, this this fairly serious conversation. Uh, well, I don't know if this conversation serious, but it's certainly a very serious scandal with all kinds of very serious implications internationally. There's this approach of a, of a black comedy that uh, burns, you know, touches this issue with his script and that Soderbergh carries on in the whole film. What do you think of this as a black comedy? <laughs> there are two ways of, of making this movie, right? You can do it all the president's men style, or you can do it the big short style. Um, or you can do it like the assistant style, as in like, well, just forget about the big ramifications of what's happening, just like get into the body of one one affected person somewhere in there and then just do it so on, on the outskirts of it. Try and just um, feel the energy of, of what it must have been like to be part of this, right? Mm-hmm. I suppose, right? <clears throat> but theoretically, I appreciate the black comedy approach because for me, the big short works wonders. I really like it. And then I think the reason why this one doesn't hit is because like something like the big short, like always, even though it's heavily chopped up with vignettes or with these sort of meta textuals of like Anthony Bourdain, just like explaining to you what a, um, what a CDO is by, by showing you how to make a fish soup or with Margot Robbie in a bubble bath telling you all about, I don't know, collateral, some 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 other financial instruments of some description, right? Um, or with Ryan Gosling doing a Jenga <laughs> right. tower of, um, you know, dog shit wrapped in cat shit, <laughs> something, something like that, right? But then again, even with the big shot, you can do it like this, um, or like Margin Call, for instance, right? Or like the post or something like that, right? You can you can you can do it in one one of these three ways, and they 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 can all work in their own ways. 
Um, but what it needs is characters. Like you need something in here. Like there's like in in that movie there was always Steve Carell, and his sort of posse of, of financial advisors or whatever the hell they were. You were just following somehow. Um, in here, you don't really know who you follow. It's a it it is it is a collection of vignettes, and then your your guides into it are the perpetrators of this. So. Not necessarily the best choice, I suppose, because I don't know if they're supposed to be funny or or what. But yeah, now so, at the same yeah at the same time, I think like people were actively angry about the what what the back the the big shot was about was illuminating what just like I think the reaction to this would have was like <sighs> the audacity on behalf of these people like they really did this. And then, yeah. when, meanwhile, like when the Panama Papers rolled rolled around, we'll be just like, like I knew this was happening. Like, I, I, I thanks for illuminating this, but I, we all knew. Like we've, like we, we knew all along. Like it's not new that David Cameron has a has a trust fund in the British Virgin Islands, or like King Abdul somewhere of of Oman or whatever has a has a billion dollars stashed away in in Saint Kitts or something, right? It's yeah. one of those. Um, yeah, so uh, what I would add to that is, do, do you not think maybe the Meryl Streep character is supposed to be the, the lifeline for the audience through here? But she not... disappears for like half the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, she this... doesn't disappear. Like she just also she... just wears a disguise for for a little while. She but, got, then yeah. for, but then you don't, know, you don't know if it's her. So is that, and I agree with what, what you're saying, but is, um, is Meryl Streep not enough because she is the ordinary Joe and her story is tragic? Why don't why don't we connect with her? Is it because she disappears? If I think we had, so, had yeah. if we had more of her throughout, because I feel we have plenty of her, but um, I sort of wonder. Uh, I'm I'm fine with it, and uh, you know what? As yeah, you know, I can't play devil's advocate. She does disappear. <laughs> and, and and honestly, I don't know if it's it's enough by itself anyway. Just her story, even though I love the opening, because I should be hooked by this opening. This older couple, they're retired, they're on this trip. And it's really a nice scene. It's a beautiful little scene where they, you know, get overtaken by a rogue wave and die. Uh, but that's that's an effective hook for me. But I wonder even before that, you've got, a little bit of a tonal jarringness to the very opening where you've got these two guys, <laughs> Mosak and Fonseca. <laughs> Mosak and Fonseca. <laughs> and they talk about the history of money and they talk about the bartering system. And there's, there's such a flagrant over the top goofiness with that even to the point because we've got cavemen and that's sort of odd, but further you've got their eyes are blocked out. So, you know, as if their, their identities are being kept uh, secret and they're, they're cavemen. <laughs> and it's almost as if there's just so much fun and color and comedy that maybe that undermines it. That sets the tone even before the rogue wave and the rogue waves a nice scene, but uh, I wonder maybe if, if that's a piece that that sort of undermines uh, Meryl Streep's role in this. I think it does, definitely helps in undermining this because, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily mind if, if every now and again they would just 
pause in the sort of Richard Lester slash Woody Allen in the 70s style, as in like, well, there are these two characters who come in here and they're going to comment on what's happening because like Meryl Streep is learning about shell companies. So they will just pause and then in the sort of Adam McKay style, explain to you using an example of a fish soup or I don't know, something, right? To, To get you on board in a comical way. I think that would have worked. And I think they're doing it at least in the beginning, but then they just shelve this character. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like, why why am I listening to this woman just singing a song in a pool? Uh, and I don't know. Like you, you almost abandon this character only to come back every now and again. Like mm. I, I feel this is a bad decision. I mean, maybe this is one of those where Scott Burns wants to do a contagion, as in like nest these vignettes somehow because like these vignettes in contagion for instance are all all almost all sort of independent like you very rarely see um i mean some characters like um uh jennifer ale in i think in mm-hmm. no sorry kate winslet interviews matt damon for instance right but then most for the most part they're all kind of all separate these little stories like you know um like the the Chinese plot in Hong Kong or whatever, and Matt Damon there, um, and Pathetia somewhere else. You know, all these things are kind of just independent from, from one another. And I think this is kind of how he wants to stage this. It's like nest these like five stories that you will just follow follow along independently, but you just, but they're not as interesting. Like they're dramatically comp- completely, um, like they're lifeless. Apart from the Meryl Streep story that we just actively shelf for half the movie, I would have enjoyed more if if I just got to learn all of this stuff about like or just got got to got to be part of the process as she gets to the Caribbean to find um, Jeffrey Wright who <laughs> speaks with the most ludicrous accent in the world, right? Or second only to Gary Oldman's German accent. It's all going to come back, I promise. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would have enjoyed more this journey as in like the investigative part of like Meryl Streep trying to learn what happened and then get some kind of justice out of this and realizing that this is happening and maybe fictitiously uh, positing her as the John Doe character who, you know, like wrote this manifesto about this bullshit. Like uh, this would have been, I think you could have made made it fun and then maybe just artistically license some things and just pretend this happened differently it doesn't i could yeah it doesn't aspire to any sort of realism anyway i i think that hmm, just listening to you talk it makes me wonder about uh scott burns approach and just the nature of the panama papers like there's just so many details and there's just so many things that would unravel from from that scandal i wonder if scott burns has taken on so much that it's just it's so much information that it it it's really hard to communicate to the viewer, right? So so how do you go about it? And you just you treat it comically, that's fine. Um, but because you're focused on so many other things, you let the Meryl Streep character go. And I'm okay with having you know these moments and sessions and other vignettes and going to China and going to you know all these other places without Meryl Streep. But I I feel that I'm. I'm not feeling her pain by the time we get to the end and see Matt Damon, he disappears in contagion. And I think that's a good comp actually. Uh, 
he disappears for periods of that movie while we're following other parts of the pandemic and things that are, are happening. But we come back to him in, a, in sort of a meaningful way. I wonder if, if, if Meryl Streep's character had more of that, uh, we're with her, you know, to, mm-hmm. if that type of personal journey, because the stuff where she's trying to get the, uh, the condo in Vegas and she gets screwed over on that. I'm, 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 I'm engaged in that. I'm following that. And then Sharon Stone shows up as, you know, just a ruthless realtor. Uh, but we don't get that much at the end uh, with, with Meryl Streep and, and yeah, she goes away, but, but she does come back periodically. And I think we're, we're missing the connection when we see her again, she's ranting to her daughter while they're shopping, mm-hmm. you know? So that's not something that I feel all that connected to. Cause she's also, also lays out exposition. In, Cause it's in exposition dump. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot of exposition dump, which goes to the Scott Burns is trying to communicate all this. He's trying to make it palatable and, you know, to his credit, there's so much going on here that it's an education piece you know, I have a, a note later. Is this a film that could be used for education purposes? Um, because it is trying to explain an awful lot. And is it too much? Does it bite off a little bit more than it can chew in that sense? Because then it's it's yes. losing it's losing the connection. <laughs> okay. Yes. The yeah. answer is yes. Because if you think about it, like I think Scott Burns like sees like there's so much in here, so he's going to try to have a bite of everything. Meanwhile, I think it's a mistake. I would have much preferred. If like the minute Sharon Stone shows up and then she says like oh, I have these like Russian speaking people whatever and then Meryl Streep leaves the elevator this is where propulsive music should k- kick in and this is where it becomes an intrigue that takes Meryl Streep on an adventure into a into a world that she doesn't necessarily understand it may be dangerous for her it may be stakes or whatever but this is gonna be a, an obsession that's going to consume her right and on the back of that you'll learn a, f- a thing or two about. Uh, this scandal that will just gonna that's going to unwrap uh, just happen sort of either on the sidelines or maybe she's gonna be fictitiously implemented in in there in there as a composite character standing for the John Doe character who leaked it all out maybe you know and I think Scott Burns succeeds like okay there's so many things you can do in here because in here there's a movie like this as in like the investigative black comedy with these sort of think about it. The big shot made in the spirit of the laundromat would also involve like a 20 minute sequence of someone's domestic life as their house is being repossessed. <laughs> just like, leave Steve Carell, leave Ryan Gosling, leave all these people behind and just like move on to New Mexico where these people who just bought the house that they didn't really afford. Now they have to leave it. Um, and then at the same time also move into the head offices of the Lehman Brothers as they um, as they, you know, have have their margin call sort of um, f- sort of conference call in the middle of the night as they decide that they need to sell everything. You know, that's kind of... Meanwhile, the right answer would be do all three. As in, make a documentary where you educate people, make your black comedy slash, in, like, in the spirit of The Informant, where Meryl Streep is essentially Matt Damon who's on some kind of an adventure, and do a margin call investigative sort of uh, like a like a sort of localized piece you can do all of them you don't have to be the one person doing it but pick one <laughs> just pick one you know what it sort of feels like just this approach because the um by the time we get all say 20 minutes into it we start launching off into these other 
little self-contained vignettes. Now that I'm thinking about it, it feels like Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> you know, and you then know, the like Crypt it, Keeper is Gary Oldman. Yeah, all he needed was the, his old his, makeup from his, Hannibal. His ball sack himself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because, uh, uh, yeah, the fact that they're all sort of freestanding is is sort of an element that that bothers me. Um, and I forget all of them. The one that sort of stands out is, and it's it's not that. It works fine as a single episode of Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> and this is the story of the, the the rich guy from South Africa or wherever they're they're from. Yeah, the, so, the South African billionaire in America. That's the one. Yes. Who him. sleeps who sleeps, who with, sleeps his with his daughter's roommate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. like, what a Yeah. Like, what a guy. As a self contained piece, yeah. it's fine, but what a distraction to everything else that's going on because it's not like it's cutting to our other characters. You know, the one I'm sort of engaged with the, the Greek chorus of Banderas and Oldman. That's sort of working for me in their little PowerPoint presentations, if you want to call them that, on mm-hmm. how things work or whatever. Yep. That's sort of fine. That's fine. That works. That's the Adam McKay thing. Uh, and that, that can work. You're you not know, a fan of it. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's fine-ish, but... <laughs> But this, I mean, it's and then, fine. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna be angry with you. <laughs> but but this episode, and then also the the or organ the harvesting, spy? the organ yep. harvesting in China. These could be powerful statements if I didn't have twenty minute tales from the crypt episodes to ex, to explain them right, because then they're just big distractions to me. Because but I then really, they don't they they fizzle out. Yeah, they, they fizzle out with a little bit of a connection to. Uh, Mosak and Fonseca. Bolsak <laughs> Kanseiko. So it's like the Crypt Keeper comes at the at the end of these vignettes, these 15, 20 minute stories, and sort of says, see how it's connected over there? And it's just, exactly. I don't know, it's it's too long. It's too long a vignette to <laughs> sort of have, a, have an impact on the whole. As right? in like, make it shorter and then make it a bit more punchy, as in like, turn this into a joke of some description. Right, and just do 20 of them. I don't know. Or make it longer, because at this point, I'm just invested in this woman's life, as in, like, her dad's an asshole, uh, her her friend's sleeping with her dad, and, and all of a sudden, she gets these bearer bonds or right. something, and then she goes there to Bolsak and Canseco, and, uh, <laughs> and they say, like, the $20 million company's worth thirty-seven fifty or something like this, and then we leave, we leave it there. As in, like, I think there is a there is a there is a final act to this to this micro drama with her confronting her father, who's an absolute douchebag who just took all the money, or something, right? Yeah, or not even. It's all about you know paper power anyway, right? So, or something you know. like yeah. There's there's something else. Like there's like how do we resolve this? Like we just left it at this woman storming out of the office somewhere in Panama. Right? Because of, yeah, like the the point here is to say all this power is invisible just like the uh ball second can say go say in the opening when they describe credit it's invisible power that you borrow from the future and i love that explanation and that's, that's really really good um but it's it's almost like they show up as the crypt keeper to end the episode and maybe this should have been done more so like i say tales from the crypt because maybe like an anthology film like the VHS series or something. And each one of the stories is someone getting screwed over by this network of 
the powerful playing minesweeper in the office while they have their secretaries sign documents, which just make an artifice that doesn't really exist for a financial uh, <laughs> industry. <laughs> 15 bucks a, sig- a signature. It's a good deal. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, may, this could work with these types of vignettes because they have the thematic. Uh, but I think as it's set up here, the opening 15 minutes, something like that, that sort of compels me. And I, I guess I can I can get into that film. But then when it turns into, you know, Tales from the Crypt, I it, it takes me out because those vignettes are all about 15, 20 minutes and they're about 10 minutes too long. I guess it's, it's a, exactly pick one. Just pick one approach because there is a David Schwimmer. So sort of in the sort of Meryl Streep story, there's the David Schwimmer story where you, which you could use as an, this is the guy got, that got screwed over on this as well. Right? And I will say this is um, one of the best David Schwimmer performances you'll see. Not a fan the, of the guy. <laughs> so, it, so he's the best really David good Schwimmer performance ever since he uh, uh, he was not on a break. <laughs> no, he's also really good. I'll say this in the series with John Travolta, where he plays um, the Kardashian father. Oh, and the uh, the, the people people versus the people versus OJ Simpson. Simpson. Yeah, he's quite good in that. He's the uh, yeah he plays Robert Kardashian, doesn't he? Yep. Yep. Uh, so anyway he's really good in here and it's a very human performance and robert patrick is really good in here he is (laughs) yeah very human performance and 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 what he disappears right it's almost like a robert rodriguez production like some of those productions that he would do where he would phone people and say oh yeah i would do that and he would say you only have to commit to a weekend you only have to come in for three days you know Mm -hmm. which is sort of an uh, appealing but when they produce this good work and it's for like a four minute scene and it could be a scene that matters, then we don't get them again. Yeah. Cause Robert Patrick and David Schwimmer, they go away, but you can see in maybe the, on the production side of it, well, we need one shot of Robert Patrick on the boat and then we can do three or four scenes just at this table in a, in a restaurant. And that would make total sense. And it's three or four scenes. And so that should be, you know, five hours, six hours of work. We can get Schwimmer for six hours. That'd be great. <laughs> and it's just an easy pitch to the actor. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because, like, I don't know, this could have been like an Aaron Brockovich sort of style of investigative sort of thriller with this strong woman character who actually does encounter David Schwimmer because he's related to her um, claim, right? Because the idea is that the boat overturns, um, 21 people die um, but the company that insured it wasn't insured on the lake and it turns out that the insurance was, was reinsured in sort of like a shell company and this company was sold was insured in a different company and it's like no one's going to pay out right mm-hmm. right because right. and then all because David Schwimmer needed to save money because that was his um, like well, he, this is the uh, orders he was following. As in, like, we need to find savings in the budget. Like, we need to find two hundred thousand dollars a year, so so that we can just tie our um, our budget together, right? Yeah, so, there could be an interesting piece in there because this, I think Streep's story <clears throat> is the same because she can't she can't get collection on her husband's life insurance, or that's a lot lower. Or is is everything she's is her whole adventure tied to? Um, no, her tied. whole adventure is tied to buying the uh, part. No, so so what she says, she she gets a payout out, out of her husband's life insurance, and then she would have gotten the collection out of the uh, payout from the claim for for the wrongful death, right? 
or okay, some description. Okay. So that's how and her lawyers it, involved. I think I think that's how it works. And then this this would have allowed her to buy the apartment in Vegas, overlooking the corner on uh, on which um, James Cromwell was holding two tickets okay. or whatever the hell she tells yeah. us, because no one's showing this. That's another problem. It's show don't tell again, right? Um, but at least this would be the this for me this has dramatic momentum because she says this to this woman I suppose like maybe three more seconds of the guy dying in there would have been a better choice as in like just forego yeah. the black comedy and just make it a little bit more sort of like make it like contagion you know like make me, make let's make, make it Gwyneth black Paltrow and some comedy yeah exactly make <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow die you know that's one of those like you know like, yeah. The, that if we had seen Cromwell floating, that yeah, that would have that would have added more. Because she says something like, "In this place, when I'm overlooking, when I'm looking at this corner, I I I can see my husband with this with these two tickets from like our first date, as opposed to f- seeing him grasp for grasp for air and in his dying moments, whatever." So, so for me, this builds dramatic momentum, which is then squandered immediately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, agreed. I think it's just a series of choices where it's, I guess I see sort of what's going on, but I, I just see that it's sort of missing the boat by not, by not having us fall. <laughs> it's yeah, it is missing the, the boat. boat. <laughs> but the wave didn't miss the boat. Mr. Um, Canseco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we need, we need, we need her all the way through. <laughs> so. And she doesn't really have an arc. If we do follow, if we do consider that we're following, then rocks the boat. <laughs> and she needed an arc. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, good. But as it is, she doesn't really have the much of a character. This piece of shit are in this room. <laughs> uh, we're fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not in the file. <laughs> that's the one right there because it isn't streep exactly. is not in the file nearly as much as she should be we should be following her as if she has a serious arc that wraps things up dramatically uh, yeah okay the more we're talking about it, i think this is this is sort of the piece alternatively this this could have been a series maybe this would be a fun app for soderbergh to develop and it looks more like tales from the crypt you get all these stories of financial malfeasance screwing over joe citizen could you imagine pitching this as a as a youtube playlist (laughs) (laughs) 10 minute episodes on a youtube playlist Uh, about rich getting richer Uh, oh my okay like because suppose this is I don't know. Do you remember Panama Papers when this came out? I don't know. Like the Guardian was like going all over this for I want to say five news cycles. I want to say this was a week, a week on the news, right? I and remember it occurring, happened. but I I remembered in the same context that you discussed it earlier. It's like oh, anyway, next <laughs> because like some things happened. I think like um some was it Iceland's prime minister resigned. Some in some other country, I think someone else stepped mm-hmm. down as some kind of a from from a position of influence and power. And other than that, people just moved on. And I have a feeling the only thing that maybe happened, and I'm not sure how related to the actual Panama Papers re- revelations this was, there was this Maltese um, investigative journalist that died in a car bomb. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, yeah. so you know, 
that's kind of the fallout of this. And there was another, so there was Paradise Papers, and there at some point you're just like, oh, another leak of papers from like some kind of an offshore um, sort of law firm, right? And at this point you're just like completely desensitized. Like we all know these people are are stealing from us, are hoarding their their wealth, and they're not taxed properly. Like we already know, like Amazon pays way more tax or way less tax than I do, right? Uh, and I, I'm not even that well off. <laughs> so so it's just it's it's ridiculous you know but we just we just assume it's like it's ridiculous it's it's criminal it shouldn't be happening and we continue to vote the way we do and we just move on with our day yeah like it's, it's is it ain't gonna put food on my table if i if i keep obsessing over this i suppose this is because you know like we're we're you know it, yeah, it's one of our voice. It's stuff that we know. You know, there are other documentaries that that follow this too, like Michael Moore's all over this type of material. Um, there was one. Is it called the the bank job? I'm trying to remember, or the inside job? Inside was, job. Yes. Yeah, that was, that was narrated by Matt, by Matt Damon, I think as well. Was it? Oh, I forgot that. I think so, so yeah, so this is one more voice. I, I don't know. I like the idea of a film that takes this and lights a fire in me in a way and sort of gets me upset. I would say that uh, some a couple of Michael Moore films, films did that for me. The Bowling for Columbine really upset me uh, in a way. But I guess here, mm-hmm. this the Panama Papers, the reason that it just lasted a couple news cycles is because I guess it's stuff we already know. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, how do we... Or we suspect it, I suppose. Like we like we knew all along anyway. Like we didn't have to prove, but you know, like now we do. So that's like, okay. Yeah, so it's like, uh-huh, see? <laughs> you know, and, and this stuff does infuriate me, you know, as I'm going through this this thing and I've grumbled about it before with, with my bank and they can't just return $600 that they took from my bank account and they're justifying it because, well, we put it on the tail end of your mortgage, sir. So it's like, yeah, but it's just like you took it from my. I didn't tell you to do that. I didn't have a choice in that. So you know, why are these big, big companies making these <laughs> these decisions? But, they, but like but the little guy this, is always screwed over. Exactly. But then they'll make this uh, exactly. Like, no, we make, made a logical decision because it it amounts to the same thing. But then they don't see that for you, say, as a regular private citizen. Cash flow, cash flow is a big thing. <laughs> yeah, precisely, <Just. laughs> precisely, and it's it's and and two the these big organizations, they they cover their butts first. So when you try to renew a mortgage, and they ask you to produce insurance on your mortgage and bring in a paycheck and your spouse's paycheck to show that you're still working. And to to bring all, bring in your tax tax information, like they are going overboard in protecting their bottom line by getting me to prove myself as if I'm the suspicious one. It, it drives me bonkers. This type of uh, you know treatment of customers, and I guess this is sort of the the fury that I feel should be in this this movie. <laughs> it teases it with you know this really appalling thing that happened you know in it truly an accident and there's there's no way that coverage should just not have happened automatically and payments been made out to the people and whatever it just should have been an automatic thing but there's all this horseshit above and beyond the financial mechanisms in this gray area 
that the normal person doesn't even see that is just written in financial industry formulas that is covered up by uh, shell companies and, you know, just paper, paper documentations that, you know, that hire privacy, basically privacy firms to, you know, just conceal all of the tricks. It's, it's infuriating, but this film doesn't really create that sort of fire in me the way that, you know, sometimes Michael Moore does or some, other films that actually hit Adam on McKay it. does does this, you know, for me at least. Like I and uh, I, I agree yeah. on Michael Moore, but on Michael Moore, by the way, like he there, he also there is this sort of idea. And now he makes a documentary, like he like no one will even speak to him, so he has to go in there with a megaphone and shout at buildings, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, but, like yeah. It, he's a different a different style, and certainly when you go back to you know the late nineties and the early two thousands, people would still let him into in, in, into the office. They didn't know who like he to, was. <laughs> <laughs> some interviews with him, right? but that you know that's that's gimmicky documentary stuff it's you know you're making you're making your own drama you're making your own scenes within a documentary format it's 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 sort of its own thing but uh but there are other films that sort of light this fire that sort of make me upset that people are treated a certain way or that uh things go on that that shouldn't and uh, this film doesn't light that fire it's just and maybe it's the comic tone with me that it sort of undermines it. The more I think about it, I wonder if we should have met Meryl Streep first, sort of as a, maybe even a, a cold open, this event, this tragic event, uh, before we meet Balsack and Conseco and, <laughs> and and meet their cavemen and then walk underneath the, the, the cavemen's lair into a, a really cool, well-lit club. Uh, this, this would have been so much better if this whole like first act was like a Paul Gra- Paul Greengrass esque sort of sort of like beginning of Captain Phillips where you know like you see Meryl Streep and her husband and just go into this boat and so very immediate establishes some chemistry and then it's an actual thrilling set piece of these people drowning for like three minutes you know so it actually just makes an impact and then you're on on the ball you're on board with this because you're you're in Meryl Streep's headspace cuz she's burning with this sort of desire for revenge and justice yeah but you know and i can think you can you know. find your black comedy even after that that type of an opening as well or maybe this is just the timing because like i'm just l- trying to look how long ago inside job was released Right, so financial crisis happens in two thousand six to two thousand eight, and I think Inside Job is two thousand ten. By the way, mm-hmm. I looked up my own review for Letterbox. Hold on. <clears throat> so, admittedly, rating documentaries is a difficult task as one has to disentangle the story, be it an issue, a character, or a piece of history, from its filmmaking and examine from them both side by side. Therefore, I have determined Inside Job to be thriving solely on its subject matter, and when you subtract it from the film. All it is is an info dump. Sorry, a slick, properly done Matt Damon narrated info dump. <laughs> and even though I liked it, I think I still consider the Big Shot to be a far superior effort in, bridge- in bringing the story of the Great Financial Crisis to the screen. Inside Job is good, but not- it's not jacked. The Big Shot is jacked, jacked mm-hmm. to the tits. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, I gotta rewatch Big Shot. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you know. Do you feel like do you feel how I, how I'm financially inside of you? <laughs> no, it's just I feel like this is there a, is this a timing issue because Panama Papers was like 2017, 16 ish. Yeah, maybe eighteen, something like that. So yeah, doc- documentary first, 
then do your do black comedy and then do your like all the president's men and then or or maybe just do margin call first <laughs> margin call the big short and whatever yeah i i after, guess after the documentary just make the documentary first <laughs> i i think too maybe also the just the the climate at the time whenever anything came out that had to do with the uh, financial crisis and the subprime mortgage uh, chaos around 2007, 2008, anything around then that impacted, I, I, I'm going to say that that impacted more people immediately. And if not, it was a mainstay in the news because the, the thematics, if you followed the news in 2008, Everything had to do with uh, financial crisis, markets in the dump, financial crisis, financial crisis, um, people losing their home, uh, you know, everything. Layoffs, layoffs, redundancies, all that. People affected immediately, right? People affected immediately. So even if you weren't, even if you're not impacted uh, personally, immediately by it, you feel you are because it's all every, it's all, all anything anyone talks about and also they will probably all know be, someone and it's be, all yeah, over it the news one, yeah it will be at least one person you know that's affected sure. somehow by this right yeah exactly not here though <laughs> <laughs> right like like soderbergh said when he was unless making you know, the girlfriend unless you experience. know like the saudi prince or someone like, oh jesus <laughs> yeah um whenever whenever uh, soderbergh was making uh, the girlfriend experience he ended up sort of in, infusing the idea of the financial crisis and the crisis on Wall Street and on Main Street, that that became a little bit of a subtext in the girlfriend experience. Brilliantly, mm-hmm. I might add, but it came from the fact that in leading up to production and even on set, it's all everyone was talking about around Soderbergh. So let's use it. Um, I think with the Panama Papers, it's one news story and it might last a few cycles, but it doesn't. You don't necessarily feel it in the same way as the 2008 financial crisis. Again, like this, the girlfriend experience, perfect comp because like you, you think to yourself, look, similar similar situation as in like this big global um, po- political phenomenon that sort of impacting on people's lives reduced and localized to a pair of characters and it works because you you get to hang out with them i mean imagine the girlfriend experience but with like seven different characters so that we just get around the sort of the financial crisis how it's affecting like the millennials and whatever like it wouldn't make an impact meanwhile it does because we get to sit there with sasha gray and her boyfriend yeah Uh, like that yep Uh, Totally agree. Uh, Like, so even going to a comment I made in in my own opening, this feels like a political cartoon in terms of its weight, its gravity. I get the point. I see it. (laughs) It sort of makes me sort of annoyed, but it doesn't necessarily give me uh, a fire and, and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily humanize it. I can feel maybe sympathy, but not necessarily empathy. Whereas some of some of the films that tackle this in a, in a better fashion, I, I think sort of reaches into your heart a little bit. This teases that for 15, 20 minutes and then is 
more interested in the lessons. What are the different lessons here? Is it, like, no, secrets. <laughs> oh, do you have secret the, number uh, one, secret number two, notes? secret number three? Well, I just wrote down what the secrets were. The meek are screwed. It's just shells. It's just shells. Secret three, tell a friend. Secret four, bribery. That's the one with Charles and his mm-hmm. daughter. And secret five, making a killing. Yeah. Makes, you know what, like, makes no, like, when you, when you compare this to, like, a political cartoon, this it makes perfect sense. It's, it's like a page 17 in The Guardian political cartoon that you just look look at. No one ever got angry at a political, like, passionate. Just like, the piece of shit secretary of state, look at him. And then you just look and there's this satirical cartoon and just no one gets the energy to just go about their day and just, like, I need to tell someone. I need to do something. Like no, no, no one ever do, does that, right? Yeah, unless it's a, it's a, a passionate issue that is really touching the hearts. Because some political cartoons, like they'll, they'll go viral because they're articulating a feeling that already exists. And I think with the Panama Papers, there's not necessarily a passionate feeling that already exists. So if you do a really good political cartoon on it. Great, you've got your mm-hmm. messaging in there, and, and time to move on. Yeah, it's essentially a, like a, a like this film is tr- is is Scott Burns and Steve Soderbergh trying to engineer a meme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like seeing how, like, say, The Big Short is a collection of memes because it has permeated into the into the culture. There are elements of it where people will just recognize. Um, and they say like, oh, I think I, I think I can I can understand the coding beneath beneath this meme. So I can if I can apply it myself, it will work again. And it just doesn't. <laughs> like it's just it's always like it's like the corporate attempt to engineer a meme, and they post it on LinkedIn, and it's just woof. Like wow, just this. Just you can see how how it. Yeah, how it may have originated in a PowerPoint presentation somewhere in in your like public outreach sort of office in a big in a big bank or whatever. It's just Christ. That's kind of how I feel about this movie. It's just a very sort of engineered, mathematically sort of attempt at capturing the zeitgeist of like the the anger of our times. That's why we need to do it quickly because this will fizzle out because these Gen Zers they will just look at in, in a different direction. They will just like Panama what? <laughs> so, it, yeah it, yeah exactly and uh and there's nothing in here that can sort of elevate the there's nothing in here that does elevate the importance of this issue it's, it's not like they're bringing this up in a fashion that would make this live on as an issue so for example you just saw the scorsese film that might bring up the conversation you know for a few weeks to be had about you know its various themes and colonialism and you know the beginning of the FBI and their legacy and, and, and all these types of things. And this is just me launching off of things you might've suggested and the little bit I know about it, but mm-hmm. there's nothing in the laundromat that makes the Panama papers something that I'm, I'm going to know and just sort of file away as something I'm really frustrated about. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't inform me of an event in the way that um, a, a documentary might because it's sort of singularly looking at an event or, um, or something else that's based on any true story, I suppose like it, it doesn't, you know, elevate that event in my, in my mind any, because it's just, it's having fun. So maybe, yeah, like I, I question myself, does the, does the comedy sort of 
undermine what's going on here. And I guess the more I'm talking with you about it, I think, I think it does because when you're being so playful with it and maybe, well, and maybe it has to do with the goals of the the film too, but if you want to elevate sort of the, the Panama papers as sort of a, an event in history that's, you know, worth knowing about. And it's so important because it proved all this stuff and, you know, people went to jail and it uncovered all of this financial malfeasance. Uh, it, it doesn't do that because I don't care enough. I'm, I'm moving <laughs> like, on. Not many important enough people went to jail for this. Let's just say this, the cruel irony of this film is that it tries to rein, like, in, like catch the fire like the societal ire of 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 some description that doesn't exist because the uh, Panama Papers essentially came and went, they disappeared. Like this, this was like, oh, anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. And th- this movie comes out just. Do you remember Panama Papers? Panama what? Oh, there's this movie. Oh, it's on Netflix. Anyway, it's kind of like disappeared. It's exactly like the Panama Papers scandal, yeah. as in like maybe exactly. it just like made made some kind of a. I don't know, made some a few critics angry enough that they wrote 800 words on this with while trying to uh, edit out all the slurs and uh and it just like every, everyone's like forgotten about it like no like you will never see this recommended to you by the algorithm right mm-hmm. so yeah that's what it is oh. isn't it ironic <laughs> all right i'm starting to run out of things here but there's a couple of things left that i want to talk about um They've been all over the conversation. What do you think of Balsack and Canseco? Balsack what do you think is- of What do you think of Oldman <laughs> and Vanderas in here, and the choice to make them a Greek course and oddly protagonists and oddly antagonists? Multifaceted use of these characters. I could, I think they're a little bit too timid, almost. As in, like either make either get rid of them or make them almost too outlandish so that this would this movie would function as a sort of like Richard Lester Woody Allen in the 70s sort of like piece of surreal surreal surrealism <laughs> surrealism um because it doesn't like it's they're not funny enough and then like just make just speak to Gary Oldman and tell him to just ham it up just even a little bit more because he's He's just about work a day enough that you just feel like, why didn't you get a German actor? It's like, why does he have to have a German accent? Because his name is Jürgen Mosak, Bolsak, right? So either just make him outrageously German (laughs) (laughs) or just get rid of it, right? Because it's not funny on its own right, I don't think, because they're still just, they're still exposition machines. They're just like, oh, this is how this works. And, you know, and here's a, PowerPoint presentation to kind of just you know um, support our thesis, and like when they're actual characters, they're also not outlandish enough because sometimes you just you know like what is time? <laughs> like this this sort of guy is just trying to suggest that we just like cook the books or something like that, you know? Uh, because oh it's all dated, so it shows that we did this, that, and the other. This assistant says, and he just schools her, and just like this is how you cook the books, so that people wouldn't really find out. Um, but make it a bit more outrageous, so that it actually stays in the realm of the sort of black comedy that would kind of tiptoe around the sort of world of schizopolis and that kind of filmmaking, right? 
Mm-hmm. A group in Ostland would have killed it. <laughs> oh, there's a good call. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, I don't know what I think of these guys, especially, you know, as they're also antagonists and protagonists and they're, they're bookends to this with the opening and the close to a point and, you know, the Greek coursing. I think it sort of depends on how you want to go with this. If we take this concept and turn it into our Tales from the Crypt <laughs> concept mm-hmm. where you've got 10 episodes of, you know, uh, banking malfeasance and shell companies and just people living off the fat of nothing. Uh, if you got 10 episodes, then these guys would be great crypt keepers, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of cool with that. Maybe in the context here, if you go the more investigative route, which I think might have more substance and Meryl Streep's journey and maybe David Schwimmer and Robert Patrick's, if, if their involvement in the story is, is elongated and they have arcs that we sort of see them through to the end to some sort of a resolution or conclusion, if that's our story, then I don't think that Oldman and Banderas can be Greek chorus and the actual v- villains themselves. So it's like, pick one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's... I, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's where that's where I'm starting to, to to feel on that as we articulate sort of the options that the laundromat could have been, you know. It's it comes back to the idea of just pick one because it tries to be a little bit of everything, you know. And then like you go into like I understand this whole con the, like there's like if you, if you walk into the story about Panama Papers as a screenwriter, you actually feel like you're walking into an all you can eat buffet, you know. And um. If you take a little bit of everything, that's just like get some shrimp, some you know, like some a brownie, and you know, like some like Singapore chow mein, a chicken drumstick, a potato, and whatever, and you look at your plate, and it's just like two thousand calories that make absolutely no sense, and probably will be, you know, like four dishes, and like this wouldn't be a dish you'll be you'll be telling anybody about it because it will be just like <laughs> like guess what I just ate. <laughs> Like no one, no one will ever do this. This is the kind of like meal you'll have on like your like all inclusive holiday in, you know, in Mallorca or somewhere, <laughs> just because you can have that kind of meal when you just feel like ah, you know, it's just a week of this, this so we might as well just do this. And all of a sudden, like you come back home, it's like four kilos heavier. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel. Like you know, like it it, it, it takes immense restraint to walk into an all you can eat buffet and emerge with a plate that makes sense and looks like a meal that you could just recommend to someone. True. I think Scott Burns failed. Good, good metaphor. Um, it is, and I'll, I said it earlier, I think, I think it did. Um, I, I can see what Burns is attracted to because I think he's the whistleblower guy. I think he loves this, this type of story and trying to extract the drama from it. Um, but I think that so just shelves this, it for half the movie, by the way the drama right well because i think he's also got a different mo like it'll we'll turn this into a black comedy and i don't none of the others nothing else that we talked about you know contagion side effects um the informant and in, uh, informant has some comedy in there too but i think it's got some serious stuff as well yeah this is the only one that we've seen like this and the report certainly isn't like this and i forget his other stuff so this is the one where he's he's trying to you know be jovial and and quirky and and stuff so he's not landing it on necessarily on the comedy either it's fun, it's breezy, and they're sort of cute, you know, ball sack and can't say go, but <laughs> it's not funny per se. So in terms of it being a comedy, 
you know, it's not super biting and it's not super funny. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a miss. Although I see the, the attraction to, you know, the Kafka S stuff and the system and yeah, fine. And I can now see that maybe that's something that appeals to Soderbergh, this, this idea of, you know, fighting the system or pushing, pushing back on it or, you know, finding the human story in the midst of all, you know, the, the system, I guess. So that's fine, but you yeah, know this this doesn't really work, and I think it's a matter of choices, overall choices about you know the whole production, the whole path of it, not the little choices along the way. One other thing on my radar. Oh, should mm-hmm. I, is anything on your anything on your scanner that you want to hit? Mm, no, I think no, no, I don't think I have anything. I think I've you know like I've touched on anything I kind of wanted to touch already. I think. I'm still surprised that, you know, like, again, like, Uncut Jim's podcast, a weekly show, we talk about movies nobody else nobody else wants to talk about for at least as long as it takes to watch them. True that. Uh, <laughs> so the last thing I want to just uh, pick your brain on is, what do you think of the double role for Meryl Streep? <laughs> <laughs> See, this did, is... you, did you catch that right away, just sort of on a, let's say, a, a viewer response level? Did you catch that right away? And then Why? Why would they do this? For me, this is... Okay, I may be wrong on this. I don't think this is this could be in the script, as in, like, this is where Meryl Streep walks in in, like, a Latina, Latina disguise, right? Um, <laughs> okay, I think it's kind of like, okay, because this movie totally doesn't make a choice where it needs to, it's kind of out of place. If it was, like, a Schizopolis-style comedy, then it would have, like... I wouldn't be opposed to Meryl Streep playing all the roles. <laughs> like, <laughs> there you go. Like, exactly. But, but they don't go far enough to substantiate it. So it's just like, I'm just walking, watching this and just like, why does she look like Robin Williams in the 90s? Oh, is that, <laughs> is that Meryl Streep? That is Meryl Streep. With a, oh, did you catch with it right a, away or did you know? I didn't really know. It took know. me like a minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> to me, like, it to me, like your like, second scene, it's like well, something's going on here. Yeah, exactly. But like, look, see, we talked about this in the high flying bird. As in, like, I appreciate the uh, the the idea, you know, like to, the balls to to put it in, because in today's climate, imme- the the immediate words you you'll hear will be brown face or just mm-hmm. no. This is this this is a black comedy. This is a satire. You expect the kind of shenanigans in uh, out of a Schizopolis type movie. But again, it would it would have been hidden under like a whole just slew of other things in a movie that actually does the black comedy correctly, right? So mm-hmm. like if it, if it had the balls to go full on and like an in, informant sort of like just take the mm-hmm. piss. Um, yeah, you, it would it would have worked much better, but I feel like it just stands out a little bit, especially that it actually draws attention to itself later on, as in like it becomes part of the messaging. Right. Well, and I want to talk about that too. So you're referring, I think, to the the very final, the final moments where uh, we do see, we get our last uh, commentary from the Greek chorus. So Balsack and Canseco walk <laughs> away from their prison cell, and then we're met by. Uh, the character that Meryl Streep plays, the Latina, and then she just slowly disrobes and she begins. It's all one shot. Pretty sure it's all one shot. Mm-hmm. There's a tracking shot and it follows her into the sound stage. 
and she's taking off her costume. And as she takes off the final bits of her costume, Meryl Streep actually switches character into uh, Ellie, I think her name is. So the character that she plays, the main character she plays in the film. And then she starts taking off wig and some other makeup pieces. Uh, and then she's just Meryl Streep and mm-hmm. has a message for us. So what do you think of this? I, as I break it down and try to figure myself why I'll ask you that (laughs) again in a, in a film that that's outlandish, like a full on hundred percent outlandish. Like imagine the energy of Schizopolis where nothing really makes sense. These vignettes don't connect. And it's all about taking the absolute piss, Richard Lester style, breaking the fourth wall half the time and whatever. And they do this occasionally, right? Um, and in this final moment, this character who, this this woman who plays, let's just assume 17 characters in the film, just takes off her makeup and starts speaking to you directly in a serious, mo- in a serious tone, this would become powerful because it would, un- it would just undercut the, uh, the comedy in a very sort of shocking twist, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. So you just feel like, wow, this is extremely performative and redundant. Like, why, <laughs> why, why, yeah. why am I here? Like, like, because it doesn't fit. Like, it would have cut so much better if this was coming at the end of a of, of a ludicrous satire, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. it doesn't. No, and it's it's got this weird grandstanding too. This uh, Americana stuff where she, you know, drapes a shawl over herself and makes the Statue of Liberty uh, reference all in the same shot. And is this, should we take, should we take power back? Can we take power back for the people? Is this the messaging? It's, it's such a weird, weird piece. Is, is that the messaging is that people need to stand up? And if we are to believe that's the messaging, it's weird that it's being delivered by a number of millionaires. <laughs> yep, right. That's like, true. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental problem. It's like, who are you going to exactly stand up against? Like mm-hmm. a nameless corporation that you don't know what what's happening on this on the inside of, or or like all these sort of like um, post box companies set up in the Seychelles, you know? So, like, <laughs> who are you going to rally against? Politicians who got who who got un- unveiled as having like untold hundreds of millions of dollars stashed in trust funds um, beyond the reach of uh, your local inland revenue. So who are you going to, well, because it, it presents this sort of like unsolvable problem without, um, <laughs> it isn't, it, it is a Gordian knot that you'd have to re- realistically, like just flip the table and then organize like essentially, just turn every con- like like America as a as a concept. You'd have to turn it into a um, like a nineteen seventy style revolution to actually change mm-hmm. anything. Other and, and even and still, it, it wouldn't probably fix anything anyway. It's just gonna produce a different kind of mess, right? Because like, who, who how are you going to like? Are you gonna vote? Like, what what is she trying to do? like vote for other people? Isn't like yeah. even if you do like. We, like these people are not idiots. They they will know. Like powers that be, they know this, so they will just suggest these snake oil salesmen. As you just like, this is your alternative. So like, and these people are already in our pocket anyway. 
because who you elect are still like you know like they're you know people who run this this planet are blackrock and vanguard yeah <laughs> so, so it's, it's just like <laughs> there's a moment in here of a news clip with obama who probably articulates the issue about as well as as anything else in the whole film where he says the problem is that over time the laws have become supportive of this so with everything that's going on no one's really broken the laws yeah but then this is he goes like oh this is a problem but then again he says like if it was me saying this like look i'm relating to this like look this is why why this happens but i can't do anything about it this guy is in charge of a country <laughs> so, yeah so and then he probably says like well you know because these people um you know don't get to pay taxes like an like he says like an ordinary citizen because he doesn't have the i think he doesn't have the audacity the chutzpah to say he they don't pay taxes like you and me because he knows he doesn't pay taxes <laughs> right yeah because <laughs> he, he knows he has a shell company in the in the panama or whatever in delaware like, delaware or somewhere right and that's another that's another interesting just little drop and that's a break of the fourth wall too in a way whenever um banderas and oldman are walking through the church and they're explaining the history of delaware trying to entice uh investment so there are all these uh llc companies limited liability corporations registered in delaware and the Mm -hmm. director has five and the writer has one (laughs) (laughs) which which is true. And like I was reading, like Soderbergh says, I have six now. And, you know, and he, he explains it as, you know, it's, it's a tool that if you're responsible for, for pro- delivering projects, so limited liability corporations where you've got a project that has a life expectancy of, let's say, six months, such as he does, he has to deliver a movie and he needs insurance and he needs, you know, he needs all these things that have so that it's not all in his name the LLCs are a perfectly viable business option. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very, very, um, you know, dicey, but it's a tool also, like he says, it's a tool that, you know, can be used for good and it's got its purpose, but the same way that a hammer is a tool, it's great for banging nails, but it can be misused at the same time. And so, I don't know, it's just sort of a weird little drop. I sort of like that it, it mm-hmm. breaks the fourth wall in the weird way that it does. Um, and it's sort of a little bit of a, a wink. But because it's one of those, like just like again, at the risk of launching into onto a rant, like think about like Soderbergh or like the, the director has five, right? Because well, look, this he he knows like okay, well, I need and like I have a mission. I want to I want to make a movie, and he just thinks like okay, well, I'm this project. I'm trying to get off the ground. This is this is giving people jobs. So I suppose like I'm I'm doing something good because some people will pay for their rents or whatever for for some time based on the revenue that they they will get. Uh, the fees that I'll pay them. So if I if I set up my my company in like Texas or wherever the hell I'm gonna film, then the taxes are gonna be this much. But if, but if I just move move my liabilities there and my profits there, then you know, into Delaware, then the tax the, the tax I'm setting, I'm paying on this company is gonna be this much less. So I get to spend more money elsewhere, and the spending more money equals giving other people money, so they can just live their lives, whatever. So you can just substantiate it that way. So if you if you all of a sudden like just got a million dollars, you'd probably just start thinking as well. Well, how do, how how do I make the most out of this so I don't have to forfeit a good por- portion of this money? I suppose the other so. 
where this would be like, no, I'm going to make a political stand and I'm going to, you know, um, I'm not going to be participating in this game. I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm going, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to support the country. So it's going to spend the money on schools and whatever. And then they still won't do it anyway. So, yeah, because you're just one private citizen. Because in order to make a change, you'd have to organize a political upheaval. Like on a national... But then again, if if, if, if a country like the, U- the United States of America all, all of a sudden descended into a, into a October-style revolution, like the whole world would have a problem. Like, imagine mm-hmm. this. Like if all, like if one day like America is taken over by Maoists, <laughs> you know, which essentially happened in Russia in 1917, like a massive empire taken over by, um, by communists, right? Just got knocked out so much that they withdrew from a massive war, right? Um, <laughs> so red dawn. <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of one of those. Like, imagine what happens in the Middle East if if Americans are not there. Imagine what China does with Americans. It's it's one of those. Like, you know, political people would come with consequences, and at the end of the day, like, you're a private citizen, so you just do what you're gonna do what's best for you and your family because you think like, if I'm if if I just do this and that and the other with my money, then I get to send my kids to college, and if I don't, and then I don't because I won't have enough money to do that. Things of that nature, you know. Yeah. And, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. To, to be a little bit cynical, the American dream, such as it is, feeds it's a that. Piece. But yeah. Feeds that, you know, better yourself rather, you know, put yourself before a community type of thing. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway. All right. That's it. I hit on my docket. I'm impressed that we got up to whatever we are now, now we're 45 <laughs> or something. We're, we're doing well. Uh, yeah, let's take it into final thoughts. Unless there's anything else you want to get off your chest. No, no. I think it's a two out of five, I'll say. I'll say, yeah, I think it's a two out of five. As in, thoroughly mediocre film that just doesn't make it, that doesn't make a decision and falls on its sword as a result of this. Because I think there are nuggets of inspiration to make at least three or four interesting films out of the material they had. And they chose to uh, do a little bit of everything, which means... And it's just ironically, this movie has been disappearing from the zeitgeist exactly like the Panama Papers did. So, and I feel like tomorrow I'm not going to remember half of what I, what I was talking about. So, it's kind of what it is. Ironically mediocre and lacking sort of cultural staying power that it thought it would have had. So because because they just really rushed this project um, into production, thinking that they're going to capitalize on something, and all of a sudden, like no one gave a shit, and neither do I. That's kind of where I am. Two out of five. All right. I can do. Uh, for me, it's it's breezy enough. I can give it a three star. But to be totally honest, by the time I get to my Letterboxd review in a few days, because I'm a few days behind on my own posts, uh, it may very well drop to a two and a half. It's just sort of on the fence. It, it moves along. I get it. It's fun enough. I like Banderas. I, I like the sort of the over the top elements to it in a way like Oldman I'm fine with it uh but this conversation has uh, helped me sort of realize there's a couple other ways it could have gone and been much better one might have been a mini series tales from the crypt type of thing about uh you know financial uh <laughs> malfeasance across the globe 
uh, coming out of the Panama Papers. That might be interesting. Um, alternatively, something that sticks with Meryl Streep sort of to the end, maybe Robert Patrick and uh, David Schwimmer a bit as well, because this there is a little bit of a heart here, you know, and maybe Sharon Stone becomes a bigger part of it as well. I, I think that any any soul this film has sort of resonates with that tragedy in the opening. So it's just not well imagined, I think, from the outset. So I, I think that maybe all the whistleblower stuff that Scott Burns leans towards, turning it into a black comedy, structuring it this way doesn't really work. It's I don't know if he can't do black comedy or if it's just doesn't quite work. Maybe he's more focused on doing the report at this time, which was sort of coming into being around the, the same period of time. So not sure I can watch this and be content with it, but yeah, it's, it's lacking. So I'll give it three, three stars. And then we will now jump into our tops and bottom lists. So what's oh your top three? Uh, number one is definitely the fact that we managed to uh, call these people Bolsack and Canseco. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the same know, way that we saved our, our discussion on High Flying Bird. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. Um, so I'll say now, but the three moments I've written down was the Dunkirk moment, where the, sort of the cameras have inside the boat as the boat just topples over. Oh, so, yeah. so you see like the, uh, you know, the water levels kind of like skewed. So it's like a Dunkirk moment for me. That's kind of how I view this. There's a scene in Dunkirk where a ship sinks, kind of yeah. has the same feel. It's Mission Impossible um, Fallout too, isn't it? <laughs> yep, that's yep. too. Yep. Um, same year, I think. Or maybe Just not. Very trendy shot in that era. Um, it's, and uh, I've got the um, Ant- Antonio speaking to the wrong camera. <laughs> <laughs> you had that as a top. <laughs> that is okay. a top, yeah. I mean, we didn't yeah. Tops, yeah. 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 And I've got during the Chinese negotiations, um, the uh, the the moment where you have this sort of creepy montage of, of someone removing a, a person's cornea. Like, Ooh, Ooh, yeah. That's what a, a shot. shot. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's me. Okay. Uh, cool. For the tops. An honorable mention to Streep in her prayer. She says, can't just one of them say sorry and mean it? That was just a line that sort of struck me because I feel As that all the time. Not just sorry. Yes. In addition to that, why can't my bank just say sorry and mean it? So anyway, this uh you want yeah. like this of a uh, South Park sort of like when BP saying, We're sorry. Exactly. Uh as we spoke of Robin Williams earlier. He sang, uh, was it? He he sang the uh, South Park song that was nominated for best uh, best song. He sang that at the Oscars, <laughs> as I recall. Anyway, okay, I'm off track. Uh, what have I got? Oh, there's a little touch here that I sort of liked. Uh, Meryl Streep goes to Nevis twice, and the first time it's in her dream, and she imagines she walks across the street. Camera follows her walking across the street and then she walks into this nice three-story you know municipal uh municipal office building it's got a directory on the wall and she finds the right office and then she goes in into the office and shoots it up and that's sort of that's the movie i want 
Actually, that this is a, I wanted, I yeah. totally forgot about the scene, but this should have make, made my top list as well. <laughs> That's the movie I want when she goes in there with a shotgun and just <laughs> rains, exactly. rains yeah. hellfire on these people. But but then, and I thought this was interesting. It's it's the mm. same shot when she when she so she wakes up and then there's this, something else happens. But then she actually is in Nevis, and we see the same shot where she's walking across the street and she's arriving, and that that three-story municipal building that was all digital. I was like, I went back and I watched it. This is the same shot because she's just in a small little plaza and that office building has become these post office boxes. <laughs> that's, that's all it is. And it's just this little public market, small, small area. So I thought that was sort of a nice, uh, nice touch. And the boat tipping scene, I thought that was great. And I thought that that really could have been the cornerstone of a stronger film. Um, and also interesting for Soderbergh, he's not really a set piece guy. That almost stands out as one. Uh, also, thirty seconds of action is not a set piece. Yeah, no, that, that said almost. Uh, I liked the definition. I have a bunch of small ones. <laughs> um, I like the definition of privacy versus secrecy. I thought that was well articulated. <laughs> was he, like the locking your toilet door. Yes. Privacy is when you want to close the bathroom door because you want to have a poo. And secrecy is when you close the door because you're doing something that people don't typically do behind a closed door. Well said. I like that. Um, Yeah. And I also like just the little throwaway comment to a point. The director of this movie has five LLC companies in Delaware as well. The writer has one. (laughs) That was sort of a cute breaking of the wall. Okay. Bottoms. Let's have it. I don't. I can't decide whether Gary Oldman or, Jeff, or Jeffrey Wright's accent worse. So I'm just going to leave it as a <laughs> as an ex equo. Um, the fi- I call it the final destination moment where this woman's walking down the street and like a, like an electrical pole just topples <laughs> over and then she just gets uh, electrocuted. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to skip the Meryl Streep Latina because like. I, I, I admire the balls. The ball sack can psycho. Um <laughs> But the worst is this woman in the in like the friend in the in the pool singing. Mm-hmm. Really painful. Yeah. And the fact that it actually starts like a whole vignette that that's just so bland that it's actually like you just think to yourself, like, okay, well, how much longer of this do I have to sit through? You know, yeah, it's kind of where I am. Uh, Okie dokie. So where am I? All right. So, yeah, firstly, the overwhelming amount of detail that one has to sit through, it takes a lot of enjoyment out of this. You know, I think that Scott Burns is just trying to unpack a lot. So there's that. I put also the entire betrayal secret. So the whole story of the fellow from South Africa or whatever, and his daughter and the roommate, there's just why this is. And if it's all about the bear and it's, and it is, it's all about the bearer bonds. Why do we have the first 12 minutes of that story when we could manufacture something tight out of the last four? Why do we've got this whole, uh, you know, cheating on the mother with the, uh, why it's, yeah, it's clumsy. It's not really a good payoff. And eh, why? Um, so there's that. And then 
I'm going to say the final shot, the epilogue with Streep taking her first costume off. And yeah, it might've been a great performance piece where she goes from one character to the next, to the next. Okay. I can appreciate that. But I, I dislike this business of it turning into the statue of Liberty pose. Like what is the mm-hmm. call to action here? What is, what am I supposed to be? I don't feel enraged or infuriated. I don't, I don't feel um, any, any type of uh, flag waving is, is warranted. The film hasn't earned it. It's sort of corny. So I just, the whole sort of, it's like during the pandemic way. It's like during the pandemic where you had all these celebrities locked away in their mansions telling us how we're all in this together. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or like Jennifer Lawrence advocating for equal pay for women. (laughs) I was just like, like you're like, you're the highest paid person in the history of this business. (laughs) Probably across both sexes. Yeah. It's, it's a, that's like, and that's another weird note that becomes part of this, like Meryl Streep being enraged. And she is, I know she's an advocate for a, a lot of causes and, you know, she gives great acceptance speeches and often speaks to, you know, the little guy and, and all these problems that are out there. But this is just such a weird tone deaf type of conclusion and it's forced and hokey and it just, yeah, none of it works for me. Okay. The laundromat. You can find all this dirty laundry on Netflix, although not on Netflix in China. <laughs> it's banned. <laughs> banned because in China. These, because Chinese government can take a joke. <laughs> yeah, can they ever? Uh, mm. Yeah. So this is very accessible. Uh, just so long as you have the streaming service, uh, There's that's that. Jakob, where can our friends find you and your stuff? Letterbox, Jakob Flash, um, x.com at talk about film, but don't really fancy your chances in there again. Like, I feel like a broken record. Like, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter. Go away. Um, flashonfilm.com is where I'm usually active. So, go and read my stuff. That's kind of where I am. Cool. You? Me, I am on X at Randy Burroughs. I'm on Letterboxd at Bratch7. And I'm on my Facebook group, Island Film Geeks. You can find uh, me there. Um, And you can find us on our website, www.uncutgemspodcast.com. You will find all of our stuff there. You will find notes about us and you will find our regular show stuff or Patreon stuff. It's all documented there. Check out our other Soderbergh deep cuts here on the main show all throughout this calendar year and into next year where January will also feature Soderbergh conversations. So on our main show, we've got the smaller films first Friday of every month. Uh, So there's only two more of these months. Um, on Patreon, go check out Oliver Soderbergh's Shallow Cuts, including this month's High Flying Bird. And all the big Soderbergh heavy hitters are on our Patreon. So uh, go check all of those out. And the Patreon episode on High Flying Bird will be released next Wednesday. I think it is from date of this release. Next mm-hmm. week, come on back. Meet us back here when the late Bob Foss- Fosse waltzes into our sights. We're covering all of Fosse's films this month. He directed five of them, so we're going to fit them all in. To squeeze them in, uh, we're going to be doing his most celebrated film, as I mentioned earlier, Cabaret, on our Patreon page. And a reminder that that episode is going to be free. 
Last month's Exorcist Patreon episode is free, but seven days from now, we are doing a special double episode on Bob Fosse, where we will be talking about his first and third films, Sweet Charity and Lenny. You didn't mention why, by the way. Oh, I did not. It's a big surprise. Yeah. Or is it not? No, I, I've got no trouble mentioning that it's because my it's my birthday month. <laughs> it's not just a regular birthday though. I suppose Pretty it round. isn't. Pretty it, round. It's Randy's ver- turning eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> Randy's turning eighty-eight. <laughs> he's, Randy's turning eighteen, and he's going to be uh, legally allowed to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Uh, no, it's it's my my golden birthday, so yeah, big month. So I got to pick the 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 month's film. So it's Fosse Baby because we're going to in the month be talking about my favorite film of all time, and that's all that jazz. So watch out for that in a couple weeks. Also, by the way, this is gonna be the first time. Uh, this will this will be something fifty, the big fifty, the big five zero, all that jazz. Your favorite film of all time, and also. The first time we will actually do a re-review of a film. Yes, because we back in the day with Nicola. We did a mini retrospective by, by by you know when mini retrospectives were things we were doing on Patreon, and then all that jazz was a segment we spent forty-five minutes talking about. So I smell this is going to be longer than forty-five minutes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I I want it to be, and and also to be covering uh, the great Bob Fosse and his work is a very s- special f- sequence of conversations. So I think that we're going to good get a good dose of uh, Fosse over the course of the month, and I'm really looking forward to that. So that all begins next week. So join us then. And in the meantime, I hope everyone out there has an absolutely wonderful week. Bye-bye.